That's a great hymn, a lovely tune to go with it. I, I love that great crescendo at the end there. Love, like death hath all destroyed, rendered all distinctions void, names and sects and parties fall, thou, O Christ, art all in all. Well, that's the reality, but the practice can be something a little bit different. There's far too much that we will choose to uh, disagree on, and that's what Paul begins to address here now as he's writing this letter to a real church in a real city, Rome, first century AD, and he says such things that they're applicable to the 21st century in uh, the city of Cardiff and the district of St. Melons. The first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is uh, taken up by the Spirit to declare the gospel and to write out uh, the gospel to the church in Rome. And we're put right with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And nothing else is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. As we look at those chapters, as we heard the sermons, we can stand back and admire it. Wow. But, but now we come to chapters 12 to 16, and it's the applications and the implications of the gospel. Since this has been done for us, this is how we must live. And it hurts. So we go from the wow, we drop a W, and we go to the ow. Wow to the ow. And the how, only through the work of the Holy Spirit, continuing in us, could be a series here, wow, ow, how, when, now. A great banner headline for these chapters of application are our responsibilities towards God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, looking back at chapters 1 to 11, to present your bodies, something you do now, something physical. It's not just ivory tower stuff. It's not just contemplation. It's not just I'm with you in spirit. It's roll up your sleeves. It's get involved and it's doing. It'll be different things at different stages of life. Um, things I'm freer to do now than when we had the children at home. And uh, the nature of ministry will morph and change, but always to be willing. Any station, any situation, then my body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the logical conclusion to the gospel. So there's the governing factor, not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. So I sit under God's word and the power of the spirit, and I read his word and by the power of the spirit, my thinking is changed. My affections are changed. My direction is, is changed. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a, a banner headline. And then we're encouraged to use our gifts, discover what they are and use them. We all have gifts. Every Christian has a gift or gifts. What are yours? What are mine? We need to discover them and we need to use them. But then we need to use them with grace. And so verses 9 through to 21, the end of chapter 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour, this disposition of love. So use my gifts, but use them with spiritual grace. Then into chapter 13, my responsibilities as a citizen 
to the government and the governing authorities at Westminster and uh, down in Cardiff Bay. Uh, They're placed there by God. And God has placed governments, and when they're operating as they should do, they're there to check evil and to bring justice. And we ought to obey. We ought to pay our taxes and to obey and to pray for those who are in authority, that the gospel might still have free reign and we might live peaceable lives. And then the rest of chapter 13 we looked at uh, last Sunday evening, our responsibilities towards all citizens that we come into contact with is to love them. Again, this dominant theme of love, all no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. There's the, if you can love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. This is the law and the prophets, says the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the whole of the Old Testament. Love and uh, helping those in society around and about us. Uh, And the great crescendo at the end of chapter 13, keeping my focus on the day that is coming, living in the light of eternity. It's said of John Wesley that uh, he kept every day heaven and hell before his eyes. Now the day, the night is far spent. This night of difficulties, darkness, sadnesses, it's all going to be swept away. And the day is at hand. So live in the light of that. And walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And he's writing this, let's remember, to a church. So he's writing this to Christian people. Let us walk properly, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Don't forget, he's writing to Christians. So if you're listening at home, if you're in the chapel, and you're going down this line, stop it. Let's walk properly. Yes, you have the grace of God. There is power to live the life divine. Not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual morality, sensuality. And then he says, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then we come into chapter 14. And uh, there's a whole theme here now, stretching from chapter 14, verse 1, right through chapter 15 and verse 7. Having mentioned quarrels in chapter 13 and verse 13, it seems that Paul comes on to a subject that's maybe been raised with him. Can you give us some teaching in this area? It's not a bad church in in Rome, they'd say to him, but we've got some issues. And one is, there are quarrels going on and there are arguments. And uh, so there's... What what brings about these quarrels? What brings about these arguments? And Paul wants to deal with that now in chapter 14. So he starts the chapter with, as for. So this has been raised with him. Quarrels over opinions. We've got people who've got different opinions. And after a service, they'll get into a corner and they'll go hammer and tongs with each other. And they'll quarrel about it. 
Instead of focusing on the message that's been preached, they'll go on to their little pet subjects and they'll quarrel and they'll disagree and there'll be an atmosphere. And it spoils things, Paul. Could you address this? And so Paul does. And he speaks about the weak and the strong. He talks about judgmentalness and despising. And here it is, chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Quarreling over opinions. Now, the Greek words are interesting. They could be translated this way. Quarreling over opinions, disputing over disputables. There's a bit of a theme there, a bit of a, 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 a rhyme. Don't dispute over disputables. Some things we can agree to disagree on. Disputable opinions. Dialogimos. Um, deliberating. Questioning about what is true. So here's a little point I want to make. And it's vital that we understand this. I ask my question, if I'm going to have a discussion on an issue with a a Christian brother, is this or is this not a primary doctrine? Now, I meet some Christians who say, well, all, all doctrine is primary. Well, they're suckers for this problem then. Because they're going to end up clashing and quarrelling and having disagreements almost every day. Because if you're going to say everything is a primary issue if it's in the Bible, it's no wonder there are divisions. It's no wonder there are lots of unhappy Christians around the place, miserable, losing battles, fighting battles. They ought never to be fighting. Now, we've got to be able to distinguish what is absolutely vital. What is primary doctrine? So let me define primary doctrine for you. Primary doctrine would be a salvation issue. Something which if we disagreed on, it would mean that the person is not a Christian. There are certain fundamentals set out through the scriptures. We draw them out from the Bible and we can see they are absolutely vital. So in the early church where... Most church members weren't able to read. They learnt things which were primary doctrine. And they're glorious statements of faith. They're called creeds. And, and here's one, for example. Now, if, if you disagree with any statement on this creed, it means that you're not going to heaven. Not in the moment, anyway. Because they are fundamental They are principal issues. They are things which we cannot disagree on and we must be zealous for. Here's the Apostles' Creed, the earliest and the briefest. I believe. Wonderful. Can can you say this? I believe. The modern creeds say we believe. There's something easy about that. We believe. Let's let's hide under each behind each other. Now, what do you believe? Like Jesus saying to the disciples, who do people say? Oh, some say you're this, some say you're that. What about you? Who do you say I am? What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, little c, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, those things are absolutely primary. Who is Jesus Christ? Son of God, fully God, fully man, one person. Uh, what is the being of God? Triune splendor, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are primary doctrines. Oh, we cannot disagree, and we are zealous for these great truths. All must agree. But there are other truths in the Bible which we are allowed a degree of latitude. We can agree, and that's, I suppose, why we have a denomination like the Baptists. Bit of a strange denomination, really. A whole denomination based on uh, what you do after you believed you baptised, and you baptised by immersion. So we've got a baptistry here, and we've separated from those who say, well, no, you can baptise uh, babies. But we are not saying that the pedo-baptists are not believers, are we? Are we? Anybody here? Would anybody here say that? We might have a healthy discussion. For me, I will not be drawn into a discussion with anybody on baptism, even though I'm a Baptist minister, and I feel I'm safe to say that now because I'm retiring soon. I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Christian. I happen to be a pastor of a Baptist church, and I respect the points of view here, and I will uphold the constitution of the church because I've uh, promised to do that. But I'm not a Baptist. I can accept those who have a pedo-baptist persuasion. I could happily settle into a pedo-baptist church. I refuse to argue and quarrel over a secondary non-salvation issue. If you push me, I do believe you need to be baptised after faith. I am a credo Baptist, but I'm not a Baptist capital B. Let me qualify that. So there are things we can agree on or we can agree to disagree. And on such matters where we can agree to disagree, I'll often not be drawn into conversation. I won't waste my time or my energy. Some people enjoy a good argument. Not me. I'll run a hundred miles from an argument because I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to get upset myself. And I want to focus on what is important. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so the dominant theme uh, throughout these chapters as we use our gifts, as we relate to each other, is one of love. Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. 13, 8. All know one anything except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of 
the law. You want to fulfill what God's will is? Love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. So there are issues on which we can agree to disagree and on such issues do not quarrel. And the church in Rome, what were the source of their difficulties? Well, the church composed, well, many different groups. Well, there are two main groups in the church in Rome. There were Jewish Christians and there were Roman Gentile Christians. And this brought up issues that they would quarrel about. The Jews carried baggage into their Christian faith with them. And there are two particular issues raised here. Uh, one is the primary one, the main one. There is a, a little reference is made to it. It's mainly about food. There's a passing nod towards days as well. So they're the issues. Because there are Jews and Gentiles, there are issues being raised causing quarrels on food and on certain days of the week. Now, in chapter 14, verses 1 to 13, Paul deals with the principles, and that's where we are this week. And then from verse 13, halfway through verse 13, verse 13 into chapter 15, verse 7, Paul deals with the practicalities. And that, God willing, we'll deal with next time. So Paul introduces two types of people, the weak and the strong, and two errors of behaviour are taking place in the church, the judgmental and the despising. The judgmental and the despising. Now, I wonder which you are, whether you're a judgmental type or a despising type, because they were there in the church in Rome, and I would maintain they are present in any and every church. So they are here in St. Melons, and you're thinking, well, it's not me. Well, what a good person you are then. But is it you? Is it you? If it's not you, we can just pass on to chapter 16 now. Then can't I can finish even quicker. But it could well be you. It could be me. So let's be open and think through the issues. Now, the issues raised in Rome are unlikely to be issues here. But we'll deal with principles. But they surround these two issues. The primary one is food. Food. So let's begin there. Food. The Jews had baggage. And understandably so. Think about where they've come from. They're rooted in. And we've been grafted in. To the Old Testament. Right? We are the wild olive branch. We saw that in Romans 11. Remember that? Wonderful passage. We are grafted in. To the olive tree, but we're wild, we're wild. But the, the Jewish Christian has grown naturally from those Old Testament roots, and so they carry their baggage. And throughout their childhood, until their conversion to Christ, until they saw him as the Old Testament Messiah, the one who fulfills all the prophecies, they were rooted in Old Testament practices and laws that included the food laws. Do not eat this. This is unclean. This is clean. And although they would have been taught that all foods are now clean and the shadow has passed because the reality has come, you can understand 
that some of them would have had difficulties with certain foods. Take Daniel in the Old Testament. We're going through Daniel on Wednesday evenings and we saw the the wonderful stand that Daniel makes in chapter 1. He's going to be a vegetarian. He's a Romans 14 vegetarian. Vegetables only. Because he doesn't want to contaminate himself with food that is unclean. Other Jewish young men said, well, tuck in, we're not in Israel anymore. Uh, Let's not rock the boat. We'll join you on bigger issues. But this is a small issue. No, it's a big issue. God said, don't eat these certain foods. And Daniel took a stand. And God rewarded him for that stand. He ate just vegetables. But now, Christ has come. He lived, he died, he rose again. We we live now in gospel days, the New Testament reality, the Old Testament ceremonial law, the shadow of the good things to come has gone, has passed, is ended. Uh, Jesus speaks about it in his own ministry, that time of transition. It's worth reading this, Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you without understanding? Why are you so slow? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and he's expelled. Thus he declared, all foods clean. Well, for a Jew, it's difficult, and it took Peter quite some time to come to terms with that. So in Acts chapter 10, you've got that passage. Let's have a little look into Acts chapter 10. Hope you're not in a hurry tonight. Verse 9, the next day they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But he was there in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus said, or by what he said, brackets. It's interesting that Mark, by tradition, got most of his material from Peter and the brackets are added. So Peter's saying to Mark, oh, by the way, uh, by, by this, Jesus declared all foods are clean. So it's obviously after this incident that the penny drops with Peter. So I don't know, I haven't done the calculation how far we are on now from the resurrection by the time we get to Act chapter 10. But Peter still hasn't got it. He's not eating anything. Food is an issue to him. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So if Peter struggled with this, It is no small wonder that Christians who were formerly Jews 
struggled with this in Rome and had difficulty when they saw others eating things that they would not eat. So for some Jews, these laws, these food laws, could not be easily dismissed. It took Peter some time. So in Rome, some Jewish Christians were weak in applying their faith to what they ate. They became vegetarians. Now, look, there could have been a whole sermon on vegetarianism, but they, in Rome, they were not vegetarians for the reasons that many are today. I mean, are you a vegetarian? Don't answer it out, out loud. You answer out loud at home because we can't hear you. Now, maybe you're a vegetarian for lifestyle and health reasons. That's not why they were vegetarians in Rome. Animal welfare. They couldn't, I say they couldn't care less about animal welfare. That was not the issue in Rome. The environment. We can't sustain eating all this meat. That was not the issue in Rome. It was to them a religious duty. Now, there are many who are vegetarians today, Possibly some in the, well, I know there are some in the church here. Some who go even further. I'm a, I'm a vegan. It's not because you've any scruples about Old Testament food laws. So these Jews saw their Gentile believers and some Jewish believers eating meats like pork. And they were, guess what they were? They were judgmental. Shouldn't be eating that. Have you not read Leviticus? You shouldn't be eating that. The Gentiles, on the other hand, and maybe quite a few of the Jewish Christians saw it differently. Now, the Gentiles in particular had no food laws. So they were strong. They knew that all foods were clean and they ate anything. And guess what? They despised the scruples of the weak. So here we are, we're in Rome, it's AD 55. There's a stirring sermon from a pastor, I can't think of a Roman name. Anyway, there he is, Claudius. Pastor Claudius, oh, Pastor Claudius, and he's got hold of uh, a text and uh, it's come from the newly circulating gospel of, of Mark. And uh, 50, yeah, it could, could well be, 55 AD, he's got Mark's gospel and he's opening up Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, it's stirring. And the illustrations, and they're in the afterglow of Calvary. And uh, it's wonderful. And the spirit has moved. And after the service, it's open lunch. Oh, dear. And uh, quarrels and judging and despising, and some Jews watching, is, is uh, Sister, Sister Sopata going to pick up that uh, pork pate? I hope not. Oh, she has, she has, she has. May God forgive her. And then uh, the sister who's managed to overcome these food laws and can see that all is fulfilled in Christ despises the weak sister who's criticizing and being judgmental of of her. No, it shouldn't be, says Paul. So it's mainly about food. There's a side issue on days. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
could begin to apply it to the Lord's Day. There's, it's wider than that. You can get that from the Corinthian epistle. It's wider than the Lord's Day. But you know, even, even today, we, we could have big quarrels about what you can and can't do on the Lord's Day, can't you? I mean, I remember back in my days working for another church in the city of Cardiff. And uh, William was three, and a uh, challenging three-year-old. And we had a Bible class in the front room, and lots of students crammed in there. And uh, just to entertain William, horror of horrors, we sat him in front of a television with a, remember this, a VCR machine. Anybody tell me what a VCR machine is? Probably haven't got a clue on the back row there. Yes, you probably have. A video cassette recorder. And uh, we put in a video of Thomas the Tank Engine and sat William down, and we knew for an hour Thomas could look after William. But unfortunately for us, an elder from the church knocked on the door just to inquire how Bible class was going. And he walked past the room where William was watching Thomas the Tank Engine. And he said, and I thought it was the Lord's Day. Well, Jill was devastated. I punched him. No, I didn't. I didn't. But we could quarrel and dispute. Now, it's moved on from today. Who here wouldn't watch Thomas the Tank Engine? I reckon even this elder is watching Thomas the Tank Engine. We might have had an issue with last Sunday night. Was it okay to watch the Euro 2020 final? Or was it not? How many services should we go to? on the Lord's Day. Now, we've got three on offer. You can't get to all three. Well, actually, I think there's somebody here tonight looking around. Where's she gone? She's on the door. This will be her third of the day. But one is as a, as a steward. But as we open up, what, what, what is the right balance? What about family responsibilities? We could have some arguments about that. And after the morning service in AD 55... Claudius goes off to watch the chariot race, and uh, he's quite happy to do that. But some judge him for that, and he in return despises them for judging him. So let's conclude with some principles tonight, and then, God willing, next Sunday go on to some practicalities that are more relevant, perhaps, to, to us. Principle number one <coughs> would be, do not quarrel over such issues as food and special days. So for us, it might be applicable to hymns or modern songs. Instruments, is it just the organ or could we have a banjo? I choose a banjo because that's a little bit out there. You might say certainly not a banjo, but why not? Uh, a banjo, I, I don't know. Some would say it's just, no, just a tuning fork. And a, a guy, and off we go. And it, it, sounds, it sounds better than that when you go up to Scotland, actually. Um, but we could have a real discussion about, about that. Uh, what about alcohol? Anybody here say, think that's terrible? You shouldn't drink at all. Others who think, well, I'll have the odd glass of wine. We, we could... What is the, what's the Bible's teaching on that? Uh, what about, well, we mentioned forms of baptism. You've got to get on to the refurb. 
And we, we could have healthy discussions about that. The new pastor, what should he be like? COVID regulations, how far do we follow what the government is saying? And what the Lord is saying is these are secondary matters. You can hold an opinion over them. Do not quarrel. And both the strong and the weak is a second principle. Both the strong and the weak need to do something. And it's verse, the second part of verse 5. I'll read the whole of verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, here's the thing, here's the principle. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right, don't just follow the crowd. Well, I'm going to drink alcohol because mum and dad drink alcohol. You need to go through the scriptures yourself if you're a Christian and come to your own considered opinion on the matter. And your opinion will be shaded and swayed by what Paul has got to say in the rest of chapter 14 and into chapter 15. But the one who abstains and the one who drinks, the one who eats, the one who doesn't, the one who uh, goes to this thing on the Lord's Day, the one who doesn't, need to settle it in their own minds. And then, once they've done that, the other principle, act for the glory of Jesus Christ. So verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honour of the Lord and give thanks to God. So they're both doing it unto the Lord. I'm drinking a glass of wine to the glory of God. It warms my heart. I will not get drunk, but I will do. I'm abstaining to the glory of God because, and you'll have your, I've thought this through. But you don't argue with each other, that's what he's saying. And you don't keep banging on about a secondary issue. Third, another principle. Do not judge a fellow believer because of your scruples. If you've come to the conclusion, I'm focusing on drink for some reason, that you mustn't drink at all, don't judge a fellow believer who's come to a different conclusion, unless, of course, he goes to excess. Or unless he's violating the principles in the rest of chapter 14. We'll come on to this next time. He causes by his drinking a brother who's got a problem in that area, to stumble. There are times when you would abstain for the sake of your weaker brother, but I'm getting ahead into next week's sermon. So if you've got a scruple on an issue, it's a secondary issue, don't judge a fellow believer. Don't think less of the fellow believer, but love the fellow believer. Have affection for that fellow believer. And if you have a fellow believer who thinks it's wrong to drink or to eat this or to go there, do not despise the believer who has the scruples on an issue, but love that brother or that sister. So there are the principles. And he gives, in conclusion now, a couple, two or three brief reasons as to why we should act in this way. Number one, verse four. We don't stand or fall by each other's opinions of each other. We stand or fall before God. We are servants of God. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. 
and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We each serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. He's the one we answer to. And notice this, the end of verse 3. Whether we've got scruples or not, the Lord welcomes both groups of people. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who am I to sideline that person when God has welcomed him in? Who am I to judge that person when God has certainly because of Christ, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a third four that he gives at the end. And we could spend, yeah, and it, it maybe deserves uh, a whole sermon or maybe two, the end of the section that I read. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? Four. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, some have got difficulties with that. Well, I thought we passed from all that. And then verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We who delight to judge each other or despise each other, we'll answer for it one day. There is the judgment seat of God for the Christian, the judgment seat of Christ. Well, it's not a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of answering for how we've used the gifts and talents that he's given to us. How have we used the grace that he's given to us? We won't lose anything of heaven, but there are rewards, there are rebukes. Now, this, again, it would take a whole sermon. But before I start judging somebody else, remember, I have to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So there's... A real source of contention that Paul takes by the scruff of the neck, inspired by the Spirit, and pleads with them, commands them not to quarrel over things that are matters of opinion. And next week, God willing, we will focus on more practical applications of this to our situation in the 21st century in St. Melons and its environs. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this brief time in your word and uh, these things are here that we might learn. And whether we are judgmental or whether we are those who despise or whether your grace has worked sufficiently that we've got the right balance now, uh, we pray you'd help us each and every one and help us to help each other to focus on what is vital, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death and his resurrection, his return, and the need to make Christ known, or help us to discuss and to focus there, but to let these secondary matters rest. To your glory we pray. Amen.